Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to everyone. It's different when you wake up in a house and it's just me and Kathy and, uh, and no children or grandchildren and, and you get up on a Sunday morning and driving in here, uh, Kathy said, it's like summertime. I'm looking at her like, what? She goes, it's daylight. We're getting to church and it's still daylight. <laughs> so, but uh, Merry Christmas to everyone. I, I, I pray that uh, uh, you enjoy time with family, those who came last night, what a special time that was uh, to be gathered here to worship our Lord and Savior together. And you may notice something. Your pastor wears a tie each and every week. Um, usually, you couldn't pay me to wear a tie that looked like this on Sunday morning. So my daughter t calls me during the week and says, hey, Maddie bought you a tie. Uh, okay. And Maddie's bought me ties before, and, the, and I wear them. They're beautiful ties. And so last night, as we open up gifts uh, for the grandchildren and for mom and dad, we get there, and I get to the, this tie, and I open it up. And I'm like, I'm looking at my wife like, I mean, my, my daughter, and I said, are you, are, you, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you serious? Are you really serious, Crystal? And she, she starts laughing. I, I said, Crystal, I don't wear ties like this to church. I can't wear that to church. Oh, Dad, Dad you, you can wear it. That's all I thought about last night. <laughs> I wake up this morning and I'm going in there, I gotta put this stupid tie on. <laughs> I get in the mirror, I'm looking over at my wife, she's over on her side of the bathroom, we're looking over, I'm putting this tie on. I'm going, are, are you serious? Are you? <laughs> she goes, you need to wear it, you need to wear it. I said, okay, the I said, babe, the only reason I'm wearing it is because Maddie Mae gave me this tie and I'm figuring she's gonna wear earrings that match her papa. That's why I'm wearing it. So. Anyway, I wasn't the only sucker. <laughs> so after service, right after the Lord's Supper, we'll finish up with the Lord's Supper before uh, the elder comes to pray and we sing. I want all the men who wore this tie after the Lord's Supper to come up here so we can get our picture together and we can laugh at each other for the rest of the year. <laughs> this morning we come and we come to rejoice as the worship team, Pastor Cal, has led us this morning. Did you like it the way we come all ye faithful and then come all you who are unfaithful? You know, it's a great thing about our Lord and Savior. He came to serve. And when you comprehend that in your mind, when you, when you come to a place, as we as believers, I will never, ever in this lifetime understand how the one who created the heaven and earth, the one who put the stars in place, the one who gave breath to man, the one who, who created Eve, to the one who redeemed us and sent his son to wash the feet of mere men. Wash their feet. This is God. He said he came to serve, not to be served. And today on this day, this Sunday morning, and we here at Grace Harvest and every Christian church that comes to, to greet each other and to worship, we come on Sunday mornings to worship a risen Savior. And this morning is no different. We will do the Lord's Supper. What greater day to be able to break bread together, remember the sacrifice that God has done, but a Christmas morning. And I thank each and every one of you for choosing to be here to worship your God this morning. And as we come, we, we gather to worship that risen Savior. 
Today is, is a special day and a joyous day, especially for Christians. The world celebrates Christmas in a different way than Christians do. People will go to parties. People will, will drink. People will, will do some things that, that they uh, will regret later on in life. But we Christians, when we gather to celebrate the birth of our Savior, we remember that great gift that was given to us. The, the, the indescribable gift that God gave to us. And this morning, as we celebrate the birth of our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, and our King, I'd ask if you'd stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. We will be in Galatians chapter 4 this morning. Galatians chapter 4. And I'll be reading just two verses. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. This is Paul writing to the church in Galatia. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons. Father, You are our God and Father, we thank You so much for the privilege that You've given us to come and to worship You on this Sunday morning. Father, on this day that we celebrate the birth of Your Son, I pray, God, that each one of us who calls Him Lord and Savior would reflect on the great gift that You have given to us. That, Father, through Your mercy and grace, You have redeemed sinful men and sinful women to spend eternity with You. And without that gift, Father, we would be doomed to hell. But Lord, I thank you so much for your gracious love to us. And this morning, Father, as your people have gathered here, I, I pray that the proclamation of your word would bring you glory and honor. I pray, Father, for the one who's hurting here this morning. I pray, Father, the one who, as Pastor Cal said, is in a place where they not see the joy. Father, would you restore the joy of salvation to your children this morning? Father, would you bring the one who does not know you as Lord and Savior to saving faith? And Father, for those that need correction in their life, use this word for correction. For those who need encouragement, use it for encouragement, Lord. But most of all, Father, I pray that your will would be done. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You may be seated. So this morning, why did Jesus, ask the question, why did Jesus have to be born of woman? Why, why, why couldn't God just, just miraculously just send His Son as a, as a full-grown man and, and just create Him as in His physical body and leave Him here on the earth that way? Instead, He chose to have His Son be born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. And so why did Jesus do this? Well, I will share with you two reasons this morning. First is to redeem us, and the second is to make us His children. Each of us who have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have been redeemed. And so to redeem us, we look at verse 4, but when the fullness of time came. Why, why does Paul interject that here? Why does God let us know it was the fullness of time? What does Paul mean by the fullness of time? Well, let me give you a little bit of history, a little history lesson this morning. 
Many of you have heard the name Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great conquered the known world of his day, his language was Greek. And it became the common language of the kingdom that he had conquered. East into Parthia, west, down to Egypt. He, he did all of these things and conquered these nations and he brought Greek as the language before Christ was even born. No matter where you went, whether it was Spain or Egypt, or modern day Turkey or Italy, there were people who understood Greek. If you read anything about history, you know that. That was the common language. It's almost like today. English is the, every airport, they have to speak English in the towers. This is, this is the same way back then, except they didn't have airports. And this was 2,000 years ago. And so the common language to, to, to make sure that business flourished, and that's exactly what it did. By having this common language, it allowed business to flourish and allowed cultures to interact. And as a result of Alexander's conquest, when Jesus came in the world, we had this shared common language, Greek. And when his gospel was taken to all these different countries to be proclaimed, it was in Greek. And it was able to take root and to grow. And this explains why the New Testament was written in Greek and why the Old Testament was later translated into Greek. It used to be in, it still is in Hebrew, but but for Christians to understand it, they didn't know Hebrew. It was translated into Greek as well. You see, God the Father uses every person in authority for His purpose and will. Amen. Everyone. There is not a king that's put into place, not a country that's conquered, not a civilization that's established that God has not ordained it. And then upon Alexander's death, his empire began to crumble. Wars and conflicts were everywhere. You see, when there's a central power, it's able to bring peace. You may not like the peace that it brings, but it brings peace. And when the empire, when he died at a very young age in his 30s and his empire was divided up amongst his generals, war broke out and there was constant war in the region. But then there was this new nation that rose up. It was called Rome. In 63 B.C., Rome, one control, became the, the most powerful nation on the known earth at the time. And with a new empire, the Romans needed taxes. And so censuses were taken, including the census of Caesar Augustus, which was what brought Joseph and Mary to their ancestral home, the place of our Savior's birth, that little town of Bethlehem. You see... When Rome conquered, there was Romana Pax, Roman peace, for a period of time that the world had not ever seen. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. At this time, in this particular time, not before this or up to this point, had the world had this much peace in a period of time where they could travel, where you could go from one part of the empire to the other on the Roman roads. That, that you were able to commerce. Can you imagine if Jesus was born in a time when there was conflict in Palestine? What would have happened to the ministry of Christ if Rome had not been in control? What, 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 what would have been the issue if there was un unrest and civil war? What happens if 70 A.D. had happened in 30 A.D.? For those who don't know what happened in 70 A.D., the Jews revolted against the Romans. 
And, and the Romans annihilated the major population, the majority of the population in Jerusalem. They burnt the temple. They destroyed the temple to the ground. What had happened if that had occurred 40 years earlier? It didn't because it wasn't the fullness of time for that. You see, it was at the fullness of time that God let his son be born. The perfect time, the time that Jesus came was the time that God had orchestrated before the foundation of the world. You see, even after Christ's death, how was Paul able to go all the places that he went to? He was able to do that because it was a time of peace within the empire. Jesus could accomplish so much in his three short years of ministry and his disciples could soon start new churches all over the Roman Empire because the Heavenly Father used Rome's achievement to spread the gospel in the fullness of time. And so Christ was born at the perfect time in the perfect place. And verse 4 continues, And God sent forth His Son, born of woman, under the law. Jesus was born under the requirements of the Old Testament law, was He not? When He was born the Jew, Christ had had obviously not died yet. There were no Christians at this time. The Old Testament was in place. And the Old Testament was there. And we read those who are biblical scholars, or even if you've taken a glance at the Old Testament, and you see all of these laws that God put in place, including the Ten Commandments. You see all that was done by by God. And the Jews were required by God to, to live lives that were holy and pleasing to Him, even as we're called to do that. And they were commanded to obey these laws and the ceremonial laws and everything else. And, and you may look back and man, that's impossible. to Nobody can keep all those laws. And you'd be exactly right. You'd be exactly right. See, the law was never intended to save anybody. What the law was put into place was to show that you needed a Savior. That you're unable by yourself to live a life holy and pleasing. You leave me to my own resources and, and there's going to be a lot of trouble. How do I know that? Because I've been there. Take your, take your small children. Take, take somebody five or six years old and just let them do anything they want. You think they're going to do the right thing? No, of course not. Now, I, I'll tell you another thing. Give a, give a 17-year-old boy, he's got his driver's license, give him whatever car he wanted to own, tell him he can go anywhere he wants to go, pay for his trip to go to Europe, do whatever you want. What do you think he's going to do? You think he's going to do the right thing? <laughs> Amen. Left to our own, we are incapable of doing anything that's righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Even, when I, even before I knew Christ and I thought I was doing good things, it really wasn't I was doing good things to make myself feel good or make myself look good. It really wasn't about anybody else. So Christ, when He came and He was born of a woman, He was born under the law. Some liberal scholars say that when Christ came, God loosened the Old Testament standards and basically said, that's it. Old Testament's done. It doesn't matter anymore. Everything and anything we do is just covered with grace. Just go ahead and do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. That's, what, that's why in progressive churches across America that, aren't, that may be open today, they will, they will uh, have signs outside welcoming you as the LBGTQ community, and we welcome them to come here as well to share the truth of the gospel. The same way I would if a couple came in here and they were living together, and they sat down in my office in the church, and they said, Pastor... 
we would we would love to be a member of this church and i say i say that's great exciting tell me about your lives and and uh and i start listening to them and very quickly you can tell that they're living in the same house together as man and wife do you think i say oh you're welcome just come just come the way come the way you are you can join our fellowship what who cares what god has to say about it no because i love them enough i'm going to share the truth of god's word that says fornication is a sin Sex outside of marriage is a sin. It's reserved as for husbands and wives that become one flesh. So why in the world, if somebody is a homosexual and comes into a church, that they say, you don't have to change, just stay the way you are? Folks, that's a lie straight from the pits of hell. If somebody's whispering in your ear that you don't have to change after you've come to Christ, they're lying to you. You don't have to change to come to Christ. You change after you've come to Christ. And, and, we, and, and, you know, I was just, I was watching something on social media the other day, and, and, I, and there was this woman that got on there, and she, I'm a progressive Christian, she said, very attractive young woman, and she said, I, she goes, I try to stay off Christian websites, and she's a pro- professing follower of Christ, and she says, I, I hate to go, but I, I did it anyway, because the reason I hate going on there, because usually you'll find that they're conservative, and they believe in the Bible, She goes, she says, she tells a story. So I went out to dinner with this guy. And the next thing you know, he's asking me things like, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? What do you think of this? I don't want to talk about the Bible. I don't care about that. I thought to myself, and you claim to be a Christian. Where do you go to church that you can believe this nonsense? Last night, it was a busy day for, for your pastor yesterday. Um, Got ready to cook dinner. That's, that's our family time on Christmas Eve. The kids come over, except I had my son and my son-in-law, two sons and a son-in-law who couldn't come last night. Thank, you can thank them for having power restored and uh, who were working tirelessly over a two-day period. And we, we got home, and we got hit home a little bit later than I thought we would. I, I'm, I fixed the tenderloin roast. I had to sear it and put it in the oven. And uh, I'm exhausted. We're eating about 8 o'clock. And then I know that I'm on a time clock because at 9 o'clock, my son from California is going to FaceTime me, and we're going to open up the presents from the kids out there. And Chris will go, Dad, you're in a hurry tonight. What's the big deal? No, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> you wonder why I was helping everybody get their stuff out the house. I could text Jesse, not 9 o'clock, make it 9.30. So there's Granny and Papa sitting on the couch at 9.30, just whipped. And uh, got to put on that smiling grandpa face. Hey! Had a great time with him on, on the thing. But he told me, he said, Dad, he said, I, I was so disappointed. We went to service this evening. And um, he said, it would put any concert that I went to to shame, the light show. And he said they got a picture of, the, they had the Grinch there. Uh, I mean, he looked cool. He sent me the picture of the Grinch. There was a Grinch at church. And, and he said, Dad, this, this place is, just was amazing. And I thought to myself, this is what the world wants. This is what the world wants. They want to be entertained. They want to be entertained instead of understanding that Jesus came not to entertain us, but to save us. Jesus came to change us, not to keep us where we were. The men, I, I was humbled and moved this morning, emotionally moved when I heard several men in prayer time this morning acknowledge that they aren't the same man they were 
in years past. And thanking God that, they had, that he had changed them. What, what greater thing can, can someone say to you than say to you that you're a different person than when I first met you? Your love for the Lord shines through you. There's no greater, no, no greater compliment that I can ever receive than when someone says they see Christ in me. And that's what I saw in these men today. You see, God has not changed. God did not do away with the Old Testament. God did not do away with the law. Christ himself said, I didn't come to destroy the law. He came to do what? To fulfill the law. He was born of a woman under the law. Hebrews 13.8 tells us, He is the same yesterday, He is the same today, and He will be the same tomorrow. The one who created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden is the same God that we worship this morning and the same God that we will stand in front of. Whether as a believer, you will stand in front of him in the judgment seat of Christ and receive all the rewards that God has given to you. You will not stand in judgment for your sin. Isn't that such comfort, Christian? Isn't that such a joy? It should bring joy to your heart this morning that you know because you know because you know that Christ paid the penalty for your sin. He was judged for my sin. I was found not guilty the moment I accepted him as Lord and Savior. And that's where I will be one day. I will stand before my Savior. And he will say to me, and he will say to every Christian, every Christian will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. But on that dreadful day, there will be many and many, many, many that will stand in front of a holy God, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and stand in judgment for the sin that they've committed in this life. And with no redeemer, with no one to take that sin away from them, they will stand before their God and answer to their crimes of sin against God. And he will cast judgment on them and he will send them into the lake of fire forever. You see, God came through the Son under the law. And he came to redeem us from under that. And see, when he came under the law and he met every one of those requirements, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17. Again, again, it needs to be reminded to us. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Because Jesus met the requirements of the law, he was qualified to be our substitute for judgment on sin. He's our substitute. He is the propitiation of, for our sins. It, it basically, all that means is he averted the wrath of God against us by offering himself as that sacrifice, as that gift, the indescribable gift that we were given. The in, why is it indescribable? Because he is the one who suffered and died and was buried and rose on the third day. I... You think about this yourself for just a second. How many of you in here, men, I, this is a rhetorical question because I know the answer. There's not a man in this room that would not give his life up for his wife or his children. And wouldn't even, wouldn't even think about it. You'd stand in front of a bullet. You would stand in front of somebody who was trying to hurt your wife or hurt your children. You would do everything you could within your power to protect them, even give your own life freely. But would you do it for my wife? 
Would you? Would you do it for a stranger? Would you do it for somebody who had murdered your child? I want you to think about that for a moment. We all can be self-righteous and say, well, I would die for those I love. Jesus died for us when we didn't love him. It's indescribable, his love for us. By declaring that he was born of a woman, Paul proclaims that hypostatic union. And that is, that's the term that we use to describe how God the Son, Jesus Christ, took on a human nature, yet, yet he fully remained God, and, and at the same time he was fully man. God and man became one when Jesus was born. Jesus always had been, though. Don't, don't, don't fall into the heresy that Jesus did not exist before God had him born of a virgin. No, he was with God from the beginning and has always been with God. Never have they been separated, except to that one time on the cross. Jesus always has been God, but at the incarnation, Jesus became a human being. Reference for that is John 8.58 and John 1.14. John 8.58 and John 1.14. The addition of the human nature to the divine nature as, of, that Jesus was gives us that term God-man. He was the perfect gift, the perfect sacrifice. Had Jesus sinned just even one time, his death on the cross would have been for his own sins. I want you to think about that. Comprehend that if Jesus had to die for his sins, he couldn't die for our sins. So God was perfect in his son, perfect in his righteousness. But the fact that Jesus met God's requirement, it qualified him to be that spotless lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. You who know your Old Testament, you know that the sacrifice was made and the lamb was slaughtered. And it was nothing but a precursor of what God demanded that blood needed to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. All of us remember that story the first time we heard it when, when Abraham took his son. And he took him up to sacrifice him. And I, and I can remember the first, I, I still remember the first time that I was told that story. I, it was beyond my comprehension. How could God ask him to do that? How could God ask him to give up his own son? How? Why? Why would he do that? And as I matured in my faith, it, 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 uh, uh, the floodgates opened with understanding. God never intended for Abraham to kill Isaac. He never intended that to be. Because when he got to the place where he was time to slay his son, God withheld, withheld his hand, spared his son, and over was a ram that was caught in a thicket, and he used that to sacrifice. It was a... It was showing Abraham, showing Isaac, and showing all of us that God would not require that from mere men, but he would require it from his own son. His son would be that perfect lamb to redeem us. To redeem us. Look at verse 5. So that he might redeem those who were under the law. The word redeem in Greek refers to buying a slave out of the marketplace. That's what it means. That's what it meant when a Greek read these words, when somebody who understood Greek, they knew that basically that God had come to free us from our slavery. 
You see, in the same way that a slave was purchased at the slave market, our sin, you and I were born with, made us slaves to Satan. We don't look at it that way. I don't know how many times I've heard young people say it. I don't know how many times I've heard real immature Christians say this. I, 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 just, I just want to have fun. Then I'll get serious with my faith. I want to go party. I want to do all the things that the world does in order that I feel like I, I'm not missing out on anything in life. Folks, the sooner you come to Christ, the sooner the young person that you mature in your faith, the less heartache you're going to have. The less sin you're going to have in your life to regret later on. Oh, my sin has been forgiven. But God reminds me of my own sin as, as a warning. You remember when you did this, Mark? You remember the consequences of that sin? I've saved you from that sin. You're forgiven for it, but don't forget it. Do you think David forgot the sin he committed against God? He never did. God loved David. Called him a man after his own heart. The, the adulterer, the murderer of Uriah and his men. This, this, this that we would look at and say, you're despicable. You should, you should be off the throne. If anybody deserves hell, you do, David. And yet David, in those repentant psalms, cries out to God, God, restore the joy of my salvation. Because his joy was taken, not his salvation was taken, but his joy was taken because of sin in his life. I'm telling you, young person, avoid the pleasures of the world. They are deceiving and only give you momentar momentarily do they give you the fun that you're looking for. I will never stand and tell a, tell a young man or young lady that, that sin is not fun because it is for a season. And then there's the consequences of it. How many of us know people in our lives that live that life, unholy life in their 20s and 30s, and they didn't even see their 60s because of the sin damage it did to their bodies? I can remember being a young police officer, looking up to other police officers that I thought were real policemen. Real, they were real men. The partiers, the womanizers, the, the ones that, that, that you imagine that you, when you see a, a cop out there, that rough and and, and, and uh, manly man. And I remember looking up to him as a young 20-year-old something in the city of Richmond or when I first came out to Chesterfield and seeing these guys. You know, the, all these guys that I looked up to because they were manly men, not one of those men lived past the age of 70. Not one of them. The hard life caught up with them. I don't know the condition of those men's souls, God could have forgiven them all, every one last one of them, before they came to that day, which was the last day they breathed a breath of life. But we all have consequences for our sin and our actions. So what I'm telling you, young people, God came to redeem you, to purchase you from the slave block that Satan has you on. You belong to him if you don't know Christ. And if you know Christ, you've been set free from that, and you've become slaves to righteousness. Does your life reflect that redeemed one this morning? Does your re life reflect the one that you love and you serve? Do, 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 they, do you look like you're on his team? Is your jersey the same jersey as every other Christian wears that, so that you're on that team? Or, 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 or do you switch jerseys? Can't tell which team you're on. 
Too many of us live our lives like that, and we need to identify with the one. There's some of you in here I know that have been diehard football fans all your life, or baseball fans, or basketball fans, and, and there's a team that you wear their gear with, and you would never think of it, even going into an opposing stadium. You would wear that gear, identifying yourself. If you walked into to, uh, Philadelphia and you wore your Dallas stuff, get ready to get pummeled, but you wear it in there, you'd wear it. You would not be ashamed of it, but how many of us want to hide the fact that we're Christians? How many of us are, uh, are glad that we're redeemed, but I'm going to keep that to myself? Jesus was born to redeem us in order to make us his sons and his daughters. He is our heavenly father, all those who are redeemed. Verse 5, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He's redeemed us and he makes us his sons and his daughters. God sent his son on that first Christmas so that we might receive the adoptions of sons and daughters. To adopt someone, we, we look at it in our world view now, is to make somebody uh, legally our son or our daughter. Adoption is one of the metaphors used in the Bible to explain how Christians are brought into the family of God. Adoption was not common in Jewish society. It wasn't. In the Jewish world, adoption was not normally done. A person's standing was based on what they were at birth and who they were born to. This is the reason that if a man died, his brother was supposed to marry the widow. The first son to be born of the new marriage would be legally considered the son of the dead brother so that his family line would continue. That's the way the Jews did it. There was never any thought of the widow adopting a son to carry on the family name. In John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to the Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, and he uses the Jewish concept of being born again or born from above to explain how one is brought into God's family. That's how he explained it to Nicodemus. You see, in the Roman world, adoption was a significant and common practice in the pagan world. Today, you and I and many of us have done that, have written a will, and we leave uh, our personal property or wealth to anyone we want, anybody. We don't have to leave it to any one particular person. We can leave it to a man or a woman. In the Roman world, with few exceptions, a man had to pass his wealth on to his sons. Yeah, that's, you look at what will happen um, after Christ's death. In Britain, there's a revolt by Queen Bordica. And what happened was there, her, her father left her. He was, a, he was a king that served as a puppet for Rome in the eastern part of Britain. And, and when he died, he, he left some of the land to the emperor, to Rome, and they left some of the land to his daughter. Well, the Romans came in. You can't leave it to a woman. They raped her children. They raped her and they took the land away from them. That was Roman law. And so when Paul is writing this letter, the people understood clearly that to be adopted was a significant thing, to become a man's son or a man's daughter. And so if a man had no sons or if he felt that his sons were incapable of managing his wealth or unworthy of it, he could adopt someone else and that would take that son's place when it came to giving him his title and giving him the family fortune. 
And these adoptions were not infant adoptions as common today. They were mainly done when the boys were much older or even adult men who were normally adopted. In some cases, the adoptee might even be older than the man who was adopting him. There are records that show that even. And when the adoption was legally approved, the adoptee would have all his debts canceled and he would receive a new name. Pretty amazing. He would be the legal son of his adoptive father and entitled to all the rights and all the benefits of the son. I hope you were paying attention when I just gave you a little bit of history of the Roman system. Because that's exactly what God did for you and I. Our debts were canceled. We were given a new name. You know that we have a new name when we get to heaven? God has, has redeemed us and made, him, made us his sons and his daughters. When we come to faith in Christ, all our debts are canceled. It, it, think about that. When it comes to uh, our salvation, every sin that you have ever committed, every sin that you will ever commit, God has covered that with his son's blood. Those of us who have acknowledged him as Lord and Savior. And I pray that if you've not done that, that you would repent of your sins. What does that mean? It means to, to acknowledge your sin to God and turn from that sin and say, God, I am this person. I am this person who, who, who is outside of your family right now. I am not a son. I am not a daughter. If I was to die today, if that preacher is right, I would spend eternity in hell. Lord, save me. Cry out to him just as the thief on the cross did. Acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. Acknowledge your own sin. And unlike the thief on the cross, you're, you're not going to die there today. You, you're going to walk out of this building. And when you do that, God says, you know what? You have been bought with a price. You are my son. You are my daughter. My son died for you. He is your king. He is your Lord. And he is your savior. And you're his. You are co-heir with him. Everything that I give to the son. My son. I give to you. My brothers. Um, excuse me. My children. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters. We don't do it because it sounds cool. We don't do it. I met a young lady today. She said she grew up in a Southern Baptist church. She attends United Methodist Church. We won't hold that against her. She's a sister in Christ. We're all part of that family of God. We have become bought and purchased with a price. And one difference from Roman adoption is that Christians are not adopted because God thinks that we will make worthy heirs. I wasn't anything special. No matter what my mom and dad told me, no matter what my wife told me, no matter what you might say, God looks at me and sees nothing but a wretched sinner that he chose to save by his grace. That's every one of us. And when you became a Christian, when you became a Christian, you did not enter God's family as a slave any longer. You enter his family as a child with all the rights of an heir of God. That means you will spend eternity with him. What father in here would not welcome his children home? What father in here would not say, come, come, son, come sit with me. Come, be at peace with me. What, what, what son would be unappreciative of the father who did all that for him? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We celebrate today not just the birth of our Savior. We celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of a risen Savior. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Lord, my God, your mercy is beyond my comprehension. Your grace is none, nothing that any of us deserve. And yet, Father, you chose each one of us who claim the title of Christian here this morning. These are my brothers and sisters. These are my co-heirs with your son, Jesus Christ. We are no longer slaves of sin, Father, but slaves of righteousness. And because of that, we are free. Free, Father, and thank you for that. Free from the bondage of sin and, and the evils that encompass it. We are free, Father, to live lives that are wholly pleasing to you by the Holy Spirit that indwells in us. Give us the strength to do that, Father. I pray that as, as your people leave this place today and depart and celebrate and, and have meals with family and friends, Lord, I I pray that there's a boldness in their hearts and upon their lips today that when they, with their family that don't know Christ, they're not afraid, Father, to be ambassadors for you this day. May the joy of our salvation shine through us and may our lips speak of it. Father, you are so gracious. I look forward to the day I will stand with every brother and sister in here in, the, in due time. And we will stand and we will worship you for eternity, Lord. Until that day, use us for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. In just a moment, I'll stand up front. And this is the time that if there's a decision to be made, to make public, if you have received Christ as Savior and you've not made that a public declaration, I would encourage you to come and grab this preacher by the hand today and say boldly and proudly that you have been redeemed and become part of the family of God. Some of you have never followed the Lord in believer's baptism. It is not a requirement for salvation, but is the first act of obedience that we're commanded to repent, believe, and be baptized. Some of you, God has, you've been visiting here for a while, and this is the place that God is calling you to be a member. You come and you let this preacher know. And some of you, God is working in a way that I could never even comprehend this morning. If you need me to pray with you, I'll be up front as well. You come as the Lord leads, as Pastor Cal leads.